The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. No, my hockey mai kia the fold e mihine ko Duncan Green talking a lot. My guest this week is Peter Griffin, who is a technology commentator and journalist. Uh, writes a weekly column for Business Desk and has just launched the Business of Tech, which is a a podcast. Um, as, as he points out, it's another white guy with a podcast, just like just like this one, um, but. That, that looks at technology and its impact on business and, and society. And, and in his first episode, he spoke to Judith Collins, who is the opposition's technology spokesperson, and Jenny Anderson, who's the Minister of Communications. And and I do think that that is a sort of a, a bit of a missing piece in New Zealand. I don't think our politicians are particularly interested in or accountable to the implications of uh, technology in this country. Um, The most present in my mind and in Peter's and in the minds of a lot of people who are paying attention to technology, and sure that's true of a lot of listeners to this podcast, is of course the rise of generative AI, the predictive large language models that uh, you've you've sort of seen in the rise of tools like ChatGPT, DALI2, MidJourney and so on, and then a whole host of different applications which are are built on top of those APIs. So this is the second podcast this year which is going to be really focused on AI. It was prompted by, I read a a story on the New York Times uh, last week by uh, which which it was an interview with uh, Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, who's considered the godfather of AI and um, author of many key breakthroughs. He left Google last month and basically immediately, he, his last call was to Sundar Pichai, the, the CEO, and then gave an interview to the New York Times expressing extreme disquiet at the pace it's developing and the lack of a regulatory framework to sort of control that. Um, Peter picked up on that and, and wrote about it, and that's what prompted me to reach out to him. And I think his insights are particularly interesting because for a lot of us, we sort of, you know, we, we sit in between a whole bunch of, we're a bundle of interests. And whereas Peter has been working and covering technology for more than two decades now, and as a result, I think his the context of which he can place these changes and and why they are to his mind as as important more important than than any other we've uh, experienced over the last 20 years which is not a small thing to say when you think about how consequential a lot of these new technologies have been to say that this this one trumps them all obviously time will tell that but the fact that you know he's he might be saying that but but this is also what some of the you know, the biggest figures in technology who all have decades of experience together are also saying uh, it just feels like something we are on some level sleepwalking into a bit as a society and I don't think that's necessarily the right way to go. It's certainly what we have done with the likes of social media um, prior to now and I don't think many of us think that that was the right way to go about it. So this is Peter Griffin, business desk uh, technology uh, columnist and, and podcaster talking about generative AI, the latest developments and its implications for media and society on the fold. 
Kia ora, Peter, and welcome to The Fold. Thanks for having me, Duncan. Um, really excited about this. This is a, a topic that's very divisive uh, in terms of how, how interested people are in it. But um, I've, I've been reading your writing uh, lately, so I know that you're part of the, the unfortunates who, who can think about little else. Um, but I wondered if you could start by just sort of providing a, a bit of a kind of just a capsule of what generative AI is and how it's different to you know, the sort of whatever the common conception of AI might have been prior to uh, prior to this wave. Yeah, well, I've been writing about technology for about 20 years. And, and really, from day one, I was going to interview people about artificial intelligence. Uh, and, you know, this is a field that's been around for 50 or 60 years. And th there have been some really good advances made through the 70s, 80s, 90s. But really, in the in the early two thousands, what I was writing about was you know what you'd call sort of narrow AI systems, um, things like neural networks, which try and um, mimic how the brain works, where you have uh, lots of sources of information and processing going on simul simultaneously. So that's a very efficient way of um, of of finding out insights and and logic and the like. And we saw in the late 90s, the infamous standoff between the master chess player Gary Kasparov and IBM's Deep Blue, which um, which was really based on a, a neural network. You had this machine that played itself um, in chess millions and millions of times and became the master at predicting uh, chess moves and then went up and finally beat a human being. And that sort of has been a very symbolic thing. We've seen the Jeopardy um, uh, AI as well. I saw IBM's Debater AI a few years ago in San Francisco, which did an incredible job of taking on the best debater in the world in a, in a public standoff on a stage. So, you know, these are all sort of narrow AIs. They're either really good at computer vision or natural language processing. There's been huge advances in that. And that underpins, you know, Google Translate, all of those sorts of services we've been using for well over a decade now. But what we started to see a few years ago was talk about these large language models. Basically, the premise is, is that you know computer science has figured out that everything is really a language, whether it's you know literally the English language, whether it's computer code, whether it's the digital form of DNA. It's all language. And if you look at it through that lens, you can put all of this information in digital form into a language model. You can start to train that model, and this is where the big breakthrough is with so-called generative AI. The system then starts to train itself, and it's become so good at training itself that it starts to come up with insights uh, and ways of working that that you know humans couldn't have told it what to do. It's got to the point now where the likes of ChatGPT and and the models underpinning it are starting to do things that the creators don't know how they figured out how to do it. But because there's so much information being fed into these models, literally the entire internet, the context it's getting, the background, the predictive power it has based on what has been done before is that much more powerful than anything we've seen before with all of these little narrow AIs. So the, the big shift has been going from little fields of AI research uh, that are sort of a bit siloed to putting that all in one place. And the thing that has made that possible is the massive computing power that these big platforms 
like Amazon, Microsoft, and Google have, and OpenAI with its relationship with, with Microsoft is able to access. So that's been the big thing that has changed. And we're just seeing the, the potential of that now, literally just since November. And you know, as a tech reporter, this is the biggest uh, revolution that has happened in my time. Um, it really, you know, the, uh, the iPhone in 2007 was a, was started a revolution, but this one will be much bigger. Yeah, that's actually what I wanted to get to because I think that there's always the, the, the whole fundamental way that we talk about technology is it's very easy for, you know, and, and it's in the interests of whoever is touting it to, to explain it as the thing that will change everything. You know, a couple of years ago, it was sort of Web3 and these sort of decentralized platforms. And, you know, so far that, that hasn't really changed the world. But the, so the fact that you have been sort of interested in, in technology for, for a couple of decades, when you look at these kind of big changes, whether it's like like you say the iPhone or the rise of social media, um, you know, and the, just the, the just the vast numbers of people that have, that have come online, all of these have had kind of profound impacts. But so what you're saying is that this feels you know put it in context of those like where is, does this sit if you were to rank what the you know and obviously we don't know where this is going to end, but in terms of how big it feels. Well, you know, I was just really uh, getting into my professional career um, in 1999. I went to London and covered the, the dot-com collapse. So I wasn't there for the good times. I, I started out covering, you know, boo.com and lastminute.com, all of these companies in turmoil, their share price tanking, running out of capital. And and, and that really was the, the hype and the uh, exuberance of, the dot-com boom and the rise of the internet. And, and, and that is still has been, in my lifetime, the big game changer was going from a dial-up modem and bulletin boards in the 90s that I was using as a, as a kid um, on my 286 IBM computer to being on the internet, being able to access information literally anywhere in the world, connect with people. And, uh, you know, that was what they call sort of a, you know the the curation uh, revolution, where you had all of this content around the world that was curated for your access, uh, and and then obviously we had the the, the debut of the smartphone um, and apps on the smartphone, which really changed the game in terms of how we consume content, and and that format is pretty much still the same. You know, thirteen years on, it's still a little black tablet in our in our hand, even if there are foldable screens and that. It really fundamentally hasn't changed. But this feels like the biggest thing since the internet became mainstream. The difference this time is it's it's generative, it's creating content um, in ways that we haven't been able to do before. And we're just seeing the potential of that when it comes to artwork, when it comes to to text and and you know novels, news articles, uh, and that will just you know, steamroll into other industries as well. When you can generate reports from an insurance company or a health provider offering insights into what's going on with patient data or customer data, you know, technically this stuff has been possible before, but the ease of use of doing it, of rolling out these systems, the speed with which you can gather that information together, we're just going to see every company adopt this because if they don't, they'll be at a competitive disadvantage. And that goes for government as well, which is why um, 
a lot of people are concerned about about this because we have seen IT systems deliver really bad results. AI systems showing bias in the justice system in the US most famously, where it was making decisions about um, sentencing that were wrong and biased against Afro-Americans. So there's there's a patchy track record of AI. And now you've got the stuff that's so much more immediate, so much more powerful, and we still have no more visibility and explainability about how these systems work. So that's the the fear that a lot of people are raising is um, even, you know, the scary stuff about so-called artificial general intelligence and superintelligence, that's still in the sci-fi realm. There's a lot that could go wrong just with the generation we have now. So, yeah, and then that's again, you're sort of walking me straight to, to, to where I want to get to, which is fantastic. Because, like you, I have been reading the the sort of there's been sort of two there's two strands as there always is with technology. There's a, a techno optimism. A, you know, there's a lot of drudge work that's going to be taken away. There's applications. There's huge amounts of creation that always comes in these situations. But really, have I seen, and in fact, I don't even recall having seen a technology emerge where some of the key people involved in some of the conceptual breakthroughs that built it are expressing such extreme disquiet about its potential, about how fast it's moving, in a way that almost feels like they're talking about a bi- the evolution of a biological organism more so than you know, work being done by coders and, and breakthroughs that, that, that are happening in an engineering or, or, or sort of user-generated sense in, in a way. I'm thinking particularly about the New York Times interview with Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, which I think you wrote about last week. How, you know, how seriously should we be, you know, first to characterize those, those concerns, particularly the sort of, because like you say, that the artificial general intelligence thing doesn't feel particularly close, but the bad actors thing, you know, is something that we have seen for for years now as being a problem, whether it's sort of malware or uh, or, or you know, kind of the sort of realign, re, you know, misuse of social media, um, for example. But yeah, t- talk about the nature of the concerns and how seriously we should probably be taking them. There's there's sort of two areas of furious debate going on at the moment. One is in the scientific community, which is really a a philosophical debate that is long running about what are the inflection points we need to reach to get to artificial general intelligence. Ray Kurzweil's view of superintelligence, computers becoming more intelligent than, than humans and potentially being able to decide their own fate. And if they're connected to the internet, go out and um, gather up enough resources to do what they want to do. You know, that's the sort of the Terminator 2 strategy um, in motion. Um, so there's there's a, a philosophical debate going on about that. And there are, you know, some of the best scientists in the world on either side of that discussion. Some think that we're still decades away from that if it is even possible. Others are saying Ray's right. It's probably the end of the decade based on these large language models and what we've seen um, as possible. There are a lot of scientists who are conflicted, which is great that Hinton, you know, as a re- retiree at 75, um, feels free now to be able to talk openly about this. He's been sort of locked in since his startup was bought by Google for the last 10 years. He's been buried in, in Google doing incredibly influential work that has fed into Google Bard and other products, but he hasn't been able to talk about it. So we need this 
independence and this um, candor from the the godfather of AI. So that's great to see. But probably the the argument that is a bit more immediate is the people who are actually building and deploying these systems, the likes of Sam Altman from OpenAI, who has admitted himself, I'm a bit scared about where this is going. The likes of Brad Smith, the president of Microsoft, who's basically saying, regulate us because we want to do a good job. We want to be a good actor here, but there are plenty of, of people out there who are racing to be there first and to make as much money out of this as possible. So there are a lot of technologists, Elon Musk, who was instrumental in that open letter from many people in the scientific community saying we should put a six-month pause on development of this, take a breather and just figure out where we're going. So I, yeah, I think this is the first time belatedly and annoyingly that we're actually having a really robust, good discussion about artificial intelligence that is including policymakers, the scientific community, the business community. It's way too late. We were complacent um, on this. This should have been happening 10 years ago because we sort of saw where this was going. The scientific community was telling us, like the climate scientists, where this was going. So we sh we're late to the game. But now we can have um, this discussion and ultimately the the discussion needs to inform regulation um, because, you know, as Elon Musk has pointed out, every other powerful technology, whether it's a new drug, whether it's putting a, a an aircraft in the air, needs to go through Federal Drug Administration or Federal Aviation Administration. If you come up with a new device in the US that emits radio waves, a new smartphone or laptop, you have to go and get that uh, checked and assessed before it can go on the market. And the big disparity we have in the digital world when it comes to information-based systems, we don't have that. There's no vetting, there's no independent assessment of them, and that is you know, increasingly what we're going to need with AI systems. I mean, and that's that's kind of I, I you know I wanted to get to to that a bit later, but but it's it's sort of here now because you know that like I, I read the the story from a Wall Street Journal reporter earlier this week who, who created essentially an AI clone of herself that was able to ac use access the sort of go through the biometric screen to access her her phone banking system, for example, and even conducted an interview with Evan Spiegel, the uh, the CEO of Snap, which, you know, on some level is, is you know, that, that part, and, you know, Spiegel said he, he thought that something was off, but, you know, didn't want to be impolite. But that that aspect of, and, and Hinton spoke about this uh, in that interview, is if you can't, we're, we're, there's, we're, we're suffering a lot of trust decay in a society, but where we are interacting with a human, whether it's on a call like this, um, you know, an, an audio call, um, chatting with a an account that we have historically known to be um, real or, or presents as as a, a real person, the fact that this is now it's becoming increasingly plausible that any of those things could be generative AI and either controlled by someone else or just be kind of operating on their own account. That seems to be to me the most sort of accessible kind of clear and present uh, danger of the thing in some respects. You've been speaking with on, on your new uh, podcast um, for Business Desk uh, to Judith Collins, who's the sort of opposition technology spokesperson, and Jenny Anderson, who, who performs the same role. The sort of We don't really have a good perfect box for a, a minister of technology um, in New Zealand, but minister of communications 
seems to be it. Uh, my feeling is that New Zealand has never been remotely, not let alone ahead of the curve, even been aware that there is a curve, um, politically speaking, in terms of regulation. We've at best, you could characterise our attitude as hoping that something will happen somewhere else that we can maybe eventually duplicate. What did you get out of those conversations? Do you feel like our sort of politicians who are closest to this stuff are, are aware of, of just how important it is that they be paying a lot of attention right now? Unfortunately, I don't, I don't really get that sense. And I haven't, you know, I've been very frustrated, particularly over the last, since, since Labor got into power in 2017. And really, I was very interested to see if they would live up to the rhetoric of using technology as a way of, um, of tackling inequality. So improving digital divide issues, for instance, um, applying technology and government to um, to help people who needed it the most, and and really there hasn't been very much at all, particularly on the on the digital divide stuff. We, we're doing quite well as a nation, rolling out broadband access and extending that as far and wide as possible. But actually, then getting people using those devices, learning in the online environment, COVID didn't help. But could have. We we've I think we've really failed a lot of people. Um, and when it comes to to other areas, what's going on with the tech? community supporting our, our, our companies to, to really do well, developing emerging technologies, and actually having a strategy about things like AI, quantum computing, biotech. Our regulation is so restrictive in that space. So I think there's a lot of people I'm talking to in the tech field are, are very frustrated just about our lack of foresight and our focus in these areas. We, you know, I, I watch very closely what's going on in Australia and they've been very clever over the last decade at focusing a lot of research and development funding and attention at a government level to areas like cybersecurity. They've invested billions in cybersecurity, including in offensive capability. So, you know, they are much better placed than us in detecting threats and meeting them in the online space. I guess the argument is we're too small to really resource any of this particularly well. Let's see what the rest of the world does, where they settle, and we will adopt best practice. And there's a good argument for that. That would be really good if we were also uh, a very progressive nation in terms of um, uh, having low regulation for these emerging technologies, but we're not. We're sort of all over the place. We're a little bit restrictive in some areas. We're a little bit... Um, passive in other areas. In some areas, we were good, like space. We've been good on that front. But a lot of our companies that are involved in the aerospace industry are going to Australia now because the limitations for testing these vertical takeoff and autonomous planes and that sort of thing are too restrictive now. So we're not responsive enough. And it boils down to is that we just don't have leadership in government and in, the, and in our politicians who have a bit of a vision about what New Zealand's role is in this emerging technology space. And uh, I, I don't think it's going to change particularly, but it's good to see that Ju Judith Collins, who you, the last person you'd expect, Absolutely. but is actually really passionate about this and has been out for the last couple of years talking to the tech community. And, and you can see in the policy work they're doing how 
influential the tech community has been on this because a lot of the things they're asking for, better access to capital, better skills development, all of those things are, are very much in what National wants to do with tech. I mean, and, and that's almost like the, the sort of the why is there not a big joined up piece of work or, or a, a kind of conception that is almost um, bipartisan around how our country should interact with uh, w- with technology as a sort of an industry at an industrial level, but the 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 other flip side of that is the you know how do we respond to emergent I don't know if threats is the right word but something like AI like it feels like there was an era where regulation was sort of in on, in vogue and now subsequently there's been a, a, a there is a, just a general philosophical thrust to make things that happen on the internet very laissez-faire, some of which just seems completely bonkers. And this maybe falls into that category that that there isn't anyone sort of paying attention to that these are real present threats and we're going to wait till there's a catalyzing event, which could be quite catastrophic, um, before there is any motion made. And then you'll be starting from scratch as opposed to with kind of existing policy work in motion. Is that is that fair? Absolutely fair. Um, you know, you look at the work of Tristan Harris, the former Google uh, digital ethics guy who became disillusioned uh, at Google because Google was at that point, um, probably about 2015 or so, was just really focused on the attention economy, just getting people to stay engaged in YouTube or in Gmail or whatever. He went and set up the Center for Humane Technology and you know his message is really powerful it's it's basically learn the lessons from the rise of social media which has a lot of ai embedded in it uh, it's an algorithm driven business model it's designed to capture our attention for as long as possible and that led to a great connectivity between people. You know, Zuckerberg's mantra of connect the world, he definitely did that. He's got 2 billion active daily users on that platform now. But we saw the downside of that as well. The addiction that resulted from that, the misinformation, um, has has had a fundamental impact on society in ways that we still haven't admitted to ourselves. And he's basically saying... Do we want a repeat of that? Because it's the same actors, the same five or six companies that have the resource to control this technology because they have the processing power to run these large language models. Do we just want to see this happen again where we see great advances and we all become seduced by having this productivity assistant in our lives that allows us to cut through all the mundane shit that we have to do every day? That's great, but at what cost? in terms of the information that it then has on us and how that is used um, and potentially for, for, for bad purposes. So yeah, I think what he's calling for and others in the scientific community and some in business as well is right, which is not necessarily, I don't agree with the pause in development. It just doesn't make sense to me to, to throttle the innovation that's going on. But to use this period, the next six months or a year, to come up globally with um, common standards and regulation and independent oversight of these systems, particularly if you focused on those five or six companies, if you, if you said to Microsoft, AWS, Google, OpenAI, um, and a couple of others, if you're rolling out another large language model, 
you need to come to us and our panel of experts are going to look at it from a public safety standpoint. I think that we're at that point now, if we want to avoid repeating what happened with the Web 2 um, boom and the inequality, you know, it made billionaires of a small number of people, but really sucked the life out of a lot of people uh, in terms of literally their information and then how that was monetized, including sometimes against them. Uh, do we want to do that again? And I think most people would say no. The Fold is brought to you by O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa, with over 4,000 out-of-home advertising sites nationwide across both street furniture and retail centres. I'm super grateful to O Media for enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Talo for lover. I'm Madeline Chapman, editor at The Spin-Off. If you have the means, consider supporting our high-quality journalism by becoming a Spin-Off member. Sign up now at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. Let's pivot now to talking about its implications for the media, which is, you know, the, figuring out what media is and, and how porous it is. I mean, generative AI is creating media. Um, so, you know, and that, that's a big part of it. But I want to kind of think about what, what a more traditional kind of, or modern traditional, if, if that makes sense, uh, conception of the media is, you know, because there are huge implications for it. I mean, the generative AI has been explicitly mentioned um, by the uh, the guild representing writers in in the US as, as part of their writer's strike. Um, we've seen that the sort of fake Drake um, single which came out a few weeks ago, and there there are obviously um, huge implications for the sort of you know for for the news media. There's, there's the rise of kind of uh, generated video, which is sort of fairly nascent now, but um, likely to to continue. What what are some of the things in terms of what you've been kind of reading or, or, or um, coming across that, that seems sort of most pertinent in the sort of near term about how this is likely to impact media in a broad sense? Well, I think media in terms of um, traditional media, actually I think uh, a generative AI is going to be much more beneficial immediately to media companies than many other industries we're in an industry that is already really tightly resourced. Uh, we've got, what, a third of the journalists that we had 20 years ago working in, in New Zealand. So newsrooms are cut to the bone, uh, and it's very difficult for a news team to have the resource to do fancy graphical um, uh, animations, all that sort of stuff. So immediately you're going to see, I think, a productivity boost by the companies that employ this business desk is already using uh, chat GPT or the, the API to generate market reports. I mean, companies have been doing that for quite a while now, but this has made it that much easier. Um, I think Stuff is employing that. If you have a big publisher like Stuff that has bureaus all over the country, 
has a massive database of stories going back many, many years, that's a hugely incredible resource. When you take the API for ChatGPT and you start interrogating that database, yes, it's full of biased information. That's just the nature of news. But in terms of looking for the insights to plan out your future coverage, amazing. If you have structured data like real estate data or weather data or markets data, sports results, wherever there's structured information, you can then turn that into automated news stories. And that will cut out a lot of the drudgery of collecting that stuff. If you're a company like OneRoof, you know, from NZME, who love their clickbait stories about the $50,000 house in Southland that you can buy now, you can have a bot crawling for all those interesting, the lowest priced house, the highest priced house, and then putting some commentary around that. And maybe you have a sub-editor or a human looking over it at, at the final stage. So I think it, it's it's very exciting from a journalism point of view because the stuff that makes uh, media really come alive is still the entertainment factor, the personality, and, and human beings will still provide that. It's the, the big voices and names that people subscribe to a publication for. But all the other stuff, like Crux is trying to roll out bureaus across the country at the moment, and it's saying we'll have a reporter and a junior in each office. Well, good luck trying to generate much news in a local community without the help of AI. Um, I think what it's going to lead to is pressure on government, both local councils and central government, to put more of their data in a structured format so that it can be accessed by generative AI systems. And that could be really good for democracy, but will be a double-edged sword for government because they'll have more exposure of what they do. Yeah, that, that's that's very true. That, that you know, so what what are the incentives around this? This uh, becomes quite pertinent. It, it's funny you should say that about the the sort of opportunities for journalism because I, I I do feel like that in a narrow sense. I haven't. I don't feel like we've quite cracked exactly how to use it. When you know, for the spinoff, for example, we're more of a sort of magazine style site, longer form. It, it, it's not you know as accessible as as there's not as obvious an immediate use case as there is with some kind of more news-forward sites. But but you put together the bulletin, for instance, every, every morning, which probably takes a, you know, a, a lot of time and energy to, to do early in, in the morning. It will probably get to the point where you can automate a lot of that uh, process. You can send out a bot to scrape all the news websites to uh, and to train that system to look for the most interesting political sports and entertainment stories and then have a human cast their eye over it be able to personalize newsletters for every single person who is receiving that in their inbox, that, that sort of stuff is pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very accessible. And, and in some respects, it's about how do you convince people who have, you know, worked years to develop a particular set of skills to conceptually not view this technology as something which is going to try and take their jobs, but in fact, it augments them. You know, I'm thinking about uh, the rise of the robots or, you know, like, Tyler Cohen's written about this as well, that the this idea that uh, the humans who will thrive the best in these markets will will be those who can interact with whatever the technology is, which very much seems to be like the, the right way to think about it. And you can both try and exploit its um, immediate term opportunity for you and your industry while at the same time having concern about all these other elements to it, which is exactly to your point, the, what... what a good, um, you know, internationally sewn together oversight uh, might 
be able to accomplish. Yeah, and and um, the yeah. So obviously, I think it's going to be generally it's going to be good for the media, but we do have this issue, which is the Drake issue. I mean, Ed Sheeran was just in court, just um, found not guilty of um, plagiarizing, reaching the copyright of, yeah. of Marvin Gaye. This is a tidal wave coming with with AI, and the question is, how do we deal with with this? And the industry, particularly in America, is already trying to get ahead of this and saying, we want a version of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act for generative AI where we can very quickly flag where we think our copyright has been infringed and have that stuff taken down. That's really interesting, right? Because generative AI, to me, seem, most of the time seems sufficiently novel that, that you can't actually say that it breaches copyright. Even with the fake Drake song, I'm not certain that you would win a, 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 a court case with lay people making the the judgments, or even a very sophisticated mm. one, it's just it does. It's not really within the imagined bounds of copyright in some respects. But the training models are often, you know, like based on media. I, you know, I went through the Washington Post had a database of what one of Google's AI's um, tra- training models was, and you know, the Herald was the 768th most. Uh, popular site, you know, in terms of the, wow. the, the quantity of what it's training. The spinoff was in the top 5,000. And so the, these sites are disproportionately trained on media sites. You know, and we, we have been through a period where there have, has been quite, you know, a, as you point out, there's been this huge shrinking of, of journalism, but that's happened actually, you know, the, the music industry, while it has recovered somewhat, it actually hasn't been great for artists in that time. You know, you, you just go through the, the sort of creative industries or, or, or uh, media entertainment industries and none of them are, would, would say that they would take their current hand over the one that they might have had 20, 25 years ago. Is there a kind of a world where, whether it's through a class action, action lawsuit or, or some kind of regulation, that the fact that these models are being trained on the work of hundreds of thousands of formerly professional uh, creators, that they that there is some kind of compensation model for the the new creations that are ultimately made out of uh, sort of recycled um, previously existing media. Yeah, well, m- my view is that there has to be and there isn't really case law around this. There are court cases underway now. Uh, there are, for instance, there are um, image repository companies, uh, I think like Getty Im- Images, who are in legal action um, over this at the moment, if you go and scrape their database of images with a view to generating artworks and uh, images based on the sum total of all of that creative work, uh, that would seem to require you to at least pay some royalty or at least ask permission. So there should be an opt-in system. Do you want your stuff scraped to be included in these generative AI systems? Unfortunately, it's very difficult to control. So there's going to need to be some sort of system like the DMCA where you can go, actually, that I've run a piece of software over this, but but like the anti-plagiarism software they're, they're now using for detecting AI in universities, you can say, well, this is run through the checker and that's derived from one of my images. Take that down or pay me for it. We're seeing the likes of Reddit, Twitter, and others saying, um, even before you start scraping our website, we'll give you access, but you've got to pay for it. 
So there will need to be some equitable sort of system that's set up, and it's going to be quite complex to, to manage, whereby companies can say, fair, fair enough, we'd like to include your high-quality material in our model, um, and here's the licensing terms that we're willing to um, sign up to for that. Um, that will have to happen, but unfortunately we're in that Wild West era at the moment where they've already most of them the players have already scraped all the all the data anyway they've got it sitting there and they'll be loath to then start having to pay to to generate stuff based on that that's right hey um I, I, we're sort of running short of time, but I, just before we go, um, tell tell us about your new podcast, where we can find it, what it's called, and, and what the general thrust of it is. Because you know, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think a lot of people would want to hear more on an ongoing basis from you on on these subjects. Yeah, um, you know, does the world need another podcast? That's, that's sort of the question I, I had when um, we were talking at Business Desk about launching this, but we don't really have. A podcast in New Zealand that, on a regular basis, really unpacks these sorts of issues: the in influence of tech on business and on society. And uh, we just haven't had enough discussion of these types of issues on a regular basis. So that's what the business of tech is about. It's very much aimed at business people trying to get their head around these changes, try, trying to take advantage of emerging technology, but do it in a, in a responsible way. So. We're interviewing people every week, including we want to hold to account our tech leaders, both in business as well as in government as well. What are you actually doing to put New Zealand on the right track to take advantage of this, to be a world leader? Because we've done very well in areas like software as a service, going gangbusters there. But when I look around the world and see what others are doing, it's the emerging technologies that are going to decide what happens in the rest of this century and we're not resourcing that stuff. We're not really thinking about it. We're not applying it to the big problems or planning to at this stage. We're very passive about this. So hopefully by discussing it a bit more, identifying where the opportunities are, we can actually get a bit more proactiveness around our relationship with technology in this country. Uh, well, look forward to, to seeing how that develops. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Peter. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks, Dan. That was The Fold, brought to you by our partners at O Media, making brands unmissable and public spaces better across Aotearoa. Huge thanks to O Media for sponsoring this episode of The Fold and enabling us to make unmissable connections with Kiwis. Kia ora e te iwi, te ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a spin-off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. I can appreciate it. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.